don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit, like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 16. Dang. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about 2012's uh, Promised Land, directed by Gus Van Sant. Which is kind of an interesting movie to be made by Gus Van Sant, who's uh, I don't know I don't know if this really fits along with his uh, filmography. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of a, to me. It's it sort of sounds like a fa- it seems like a favor he did to Matt Damon. You know, it, it seems like something like, he can't, like that got brought to him. Like, hey, we need somebody who knows what they're doing to do this. And I think I did read that the um, this started out as. I don't know, it's kind of a movie that went through a few different sets of hands before it, it, the final version was made. So, um, Dave Eggers, who you're a big fan of, uh, came up with, I guess, the, the sort germ. Of, sort of the, the general story. Yeah, it's a story by Dave Eggers. It's not based on a story by Dave Eggers, I don't believe. Uh, but it sounds like, uh, yeah, just the general sort of... I, I suspect it's the... Uh, Really, the, the whole point of the movie is that one scene uh, at, towards the end, the conversation uh, between uh, Matt Damon's character and John Krasinski's, John Krasinski's character, where the big reveal is made that, oh, this environmentalist guy is actually an employee of, of the global, the aptly named global, yeah. uh, archetypally named global. And... Um, yeah, so I suspect that story by generally means he came up with this uh, Shyamalan twist at the end. <laughs> Just talking to Matt Damon, he's like, wouldn't it be funny? And then he tells him the story, Matt Damon's like, that's my next film. I can make that happen. Um, and then apparently, or maybe he told it to Krasinski or Krasinski something. Krasinski was in uh, Away We Go, which yeah. which uh, Eggers and, and his wife, Enda Levita, also a novelist, uh, co-wrote which was a pretty cool movie yeah kind of kind of light but just kind of kind of fun yeah and Krasinski makes things every now and then that are are kind of interesting or like little almost sort of twee things and but then he also makes like war propaganda (laughs) yeah yeah what the fuck everyone talked about how I know it's Michael Bay but it's still cool whatever that what was it at thirteen in the title, the Benghazi movie. Yeah, thirteen hours. Yeah, and then yeah. he's was in the uh, whatever the hell that um, Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan, Jack yeah, yeah. Jack Ryan series, um, which I have not heard very good things about. Probably his worst, and I think I, I suspect if you talk to him today, he would probably admit this. But his worst endeavor was brief interviews with hideous men, the, <laughs> which uh, he directed, right? Which he he acted in and, and directed. Uh, many years ago, probably 2006 or seven or so, uh, maybe a little bit later. But uh, yeah, it's a a failure. I mean, any first time director, I think that was his first his, his freshman effort, and uh, you know, first time director trying to adapt short stories by David Foster Wallace, like. Pretty ballsy, but uh, 
doesn't doesn't work. And I think he he may have found his niche a little bit with a, a quiet place, which I saw. It's, it was fine. It it did exactly what it wanted to do. Yeah, did what it said on the tin. Yeah, <laughs> made yeah. sense. Uh, well, I mean, ma- made sense. Yeah, I, I just remember yeah. the, the big thing is uh, maybe you said this like. Why don't they just live near the waterfall? Yeah, why don't, yeah, they go to the waterfall, or it's like the husband's secret that he can go to the waterfall and talk and stuff. It's like, well, just set up your house there. Yeah, somebody's like, it should be called like a loud place. Because <laughs> that, it's not that you can't make noise, it's that you can't be heard over, yeah. you know, so they could make noise if there was enough noise yeah. to obscu- uh, smother their, their voice. Yeah. I don't know. And it, it was it was suspenseful. There were some cool sort of uh, what do you call it set pieces yeah, type. Emily things. Blunt's in it, which is why yeah why any, not? Any movie's better with Emily Blunt. Um, and I just remember seeing like there's a scene where they're walking through the town, and there's like a bulletin board of people posting these like news stories about like it's sound that draws them out, and I was like, how are they printing these newspapers like? Are there places in the country that are just unaffected by these monsters? And if so, why not just go to those places? And it, it, a lot of questions, but it, it worked it for what it was. It's sort of a yeah, gimmicky kind of. It was better than movie. Bird Box, <laughs> which Bird Box seemed like weirdly it, similar, it was almost like a dollar store version yeah. of that, but more like the happening sort of. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, Krasinski did, I think, a lion's share of the writing. And it's not bad. Like, this movie's not bad. I would, If I was going to say, like, if I was going to narrow it down to, is this movie good or bad? I'd be like, it's fine. Yeah, and, and you can tell... Um, I, I feel like in the hands of a lesser director, this movie could have been bad. Um, because we fine. talked... I can't remember what week it was we were talking about, sort of didacticism so you know so apparent um but this is that um yeah and in the hands of a lesser director it would be even more blatant but that that scene I was talking about where they're finally there's this big reveal at the end I mean he just outright says like the message of the movie it's like corporations get ahead by playing both sides it's like yeah we just, just let it be that, and we'll we'll get it. You know, you don't have yeah. to write it down for us. Uh, so yeah, it, it it's a like like Jensie was saying, she did she didn't really like this movie, and I said that means you're pro fracking. <laughs> uh, no, uh, there's a there's a certainly a third position that I think I hold. Where I'm like, this movie doesn't really do it for me, but I do agree with the position that the movie puts forth and and I and I get what the movie's trying to do and I respect what it's trying to do which is to make an argument um, in a sort of uh, by by telling a story and and in a lot of ways telling a story is a much more truthful way to put forth an argument than to just like make a documentary or something yeah um, although you know we I think we've both seen Gasland Mm-hmm. Uh, documentaries tell stories too they just do it in a different sort of different set of clothes uh, but yeah so I, I agree with the perspective of the movie but it's not it's not a movie that like 
moves you. You're not like really invested in the character of Steve Butler, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, and, and but that's the thing is I feel like he's sort of a, he is meant to be that everyman character, and that's even his sort of secret weapon as a salesman is he says, well, I'm from, you know, Iowa, Elkhart or whatever Iowa, and uh, you know I've lived through what it's like when a town dies and and all that sort of stuff, and uh, I still wear my grandpa's boots because they're made in America and they're mm-hmm. yeah, all this bullshit, um, but. It, it doesn't really do it for me because because um, he's not really you're meant to identify with him because he has this kind of uh, motivation of all you people need this money uh, even you know his big thing in the bar is this is fuck you money yeah like what do you say to the you know the the car payments fuck you car payments <laughs> what do you say to your kids taking out student loans fuck you loans that was like his uh, big uh that's the big uh, Goodwill Hunting bar scene. How you like um, them apples? <laughs> how you like them apples? Sort of thing. Also, Gus Van Sant. I, I do feel like there's some weird shoutouts to Goodwill Hunting. Like, there's like an eerily similar kind of opening. This like ethereal music that plays at different times, and you see shots of uh, Matt Damon on the bus. Uh, I think he's on a bus or a train or something in the beginning. The same way he's on the train at the beginning of Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. I, f- I feel like there's a, l- a few little shout-outs uh, to that movie. Uh, there's that scene where John Krasinski keeps telling him it's not his fault. And <laughs> as, he, as he weeps into his shoulder. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you're. he's meant to be this kind of everyman character. And he, he does, or at least plays it as if he really kind of cares about these places, but the way in which he cares is the problem. Yeah, w- it's a good rhetorical uh, strategy that you know he is in the position of for the people you know he's doing this for the people even though he's lying to the people you know what like, he thinks for their benefit and he's like offering them low and yeah he's and low ball and stuff uh, but but it all the story sort of suggests this all comes back to his past which he uses in this sort of commercial of his past, but the, it, you know, to sell his story. But the real seed of it is that uh, he saw the damaging effects, uh, you know, uh, when when a town sort of goes under, and he wants to save these people from that, and that's really his motivation. What's never really clearly explained, though, is why he equates the bringing in of industry. Uh, to save these people uh, with the uh, industry that destroyed or the, the going away of industry that destroyed. So, so just because you bring in, uh, you know, these companies to, to frack, uh, obviously that's a finite yeah. endeavor. And they, you know they what I'm saying? So he's, he's ensuring that these places uh, suffer the same fate that his hometown did even though he's fighting for this under the under the, at least the, you know, the pretense that this will keep these towns from suffering the same fate that his like, town yeah. did, and it's just a it's kind of an idea of you, you can't save everybody, so try to save as many people as you like save the people who can be saved that kind of mm-hmm. thing, and it it kind of comes out and you were talking about how it's a finite resource, and they even pointed out in the movie when they say there's three hundred million dollars of 
gas or whatever yeah. that we think is under the ground, that sort of thing. Um, but even then, we were kind of shown that if you own, you know, large plots of land and it's good land, then you're going to get millions of dollars. Like the scene at the beginning where he tells the guy, like, you're going to be a millionaire and the dude's like on the verge of tears because right. he's so happy. Um, but then we have my favorite character who's the the sort of dumbass trailer park guy. Lucas Black. Yeah, who's uh has two acres or whatever yeah. and they give him $5,000 and he goes and gets a Corvette <laughs> and rolls up to the bar. And then Corvette. he moves to uh, Hong Kong or to Tokyo and uh, drifts. <laughs> and drifts. And, uh, so it's the kind of idea that he, I love that it, I just confused Hong Kong and Tokyo like a jackass. He Tokyo drifts in Hong Kong. <laughs> oh, God. Um, oh, man, that threw me off. I forgot what I was talking about. Lucas Black, kid from Lucas Sling Blade. Black, kid from Sling Blade. We were talking about authentic uh, uh, southern accents with the mother from October Sky who's in Sling Blade. Another authentic southern accent. Yeah. Lucas Black, the kid from Sling Blade. In Hong Kong, not in Tokyo. Nope. Um, never been a Fast and Furious in Hong Kong. Maybe the next one. We'll see. What would that one be called? Hong um, Kong. Hong Kong Fooey. Hong Kong Dong. <laughs> oh, wait, that's a porno. <laughs> Hong Kong Dong. <laughs> Not a Fast and Furious. Um, anyway, yeah, it's this idea that he's saving these people, but then it's shown that he's not... Some people he's kind of preying upon them with this guy who... And, you know, the, the guy is very much... Lucas Black's character is very much in favor of it. He he's like, "Hey, you haven't been over here yet. I've been waiting on you all day." And he he would tell him that Damon's sort of doesn't want to go and buy his property, but he has to because that's kind of their their policy is to snatch up as much as they can and gives the dude five thousand, which is like not enough to do anything. But the guy's like, "Well, we're gonna be." He, bur- he breaks out his special bourbon. Which is just a bottle of bullet. bullet bourbon, yeah. which is like not even that expensive. Yeah, it's like forty dollars or something. Um, which is you know. Not cheap, but it's not like... Yeah, and I think we're maybe I- anyone who knows any you know thing about whiskey sees that as like, oh, it's kind of sad that that's his celebration. <laughs> it comes out on special occasions. Um, yeah, then he, then he buys the Corvette and... The cowboy hat that he's wearing. When he pulls up to the bar, he goes in, he's like, I'm buying everybody drinks. Um, and you're meant, you're meant to be seen as like... Or you're meant to, to see it as like, oh, how sad that he's been. But also... I, I like that character because it, it's funny, but it's also sort of meant to show like you should give these people money because look at what they do with it. That <laughs> sort of thing. Like he's one of those people that can't be redeemed because he's not in the right frame of mind. Whereas we see the responsible farmers with the kids and everything, and they're right. like, oh, they're the serious people, the real salt of the earth people, not this trailer trash guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, what's uh, is Hal Holbrook's character? is a uh, I don't know how this is going to sound but Hal Holbrook is a very strange looking fellow that's the uh, teacher yeah who's just like the older old. than sin yeah like a... and there's a this is has nothing to do with like the themes of the movie or anything but there's a close up at the end when Matt Damon's giving his big oh, speech he's like crying almost and there's a close up of Hal Holbrook's face and it's meant to be like oh Steve's doing the right thing. He's Hal Holbrook is so proud that he's had this influence on him. But it is just frightening <laughs> because <laughs> Hal Holbrook's face is ah. so fucking scary. He's got these like 
glossy eyes. And the, like, it the was skin around them. Is it like, was terrifying. I was like, if you played some like scary music over this clip, it would just it would be haunting. Because he's got that like old man like ball sack skin face where everything's just like falling. And so around his eyes is completely red and just like dangling like droopy dog. <laughs> he looks like the fucking devil in that shot, dude. Um, but <laughs> his character... Like, he's supposed to be like the emotional, like, or I guess like moral center of the story. And it's interesting that he's the... Because he is, I guess, supposed to be the moral center because, you know, Steve, Matt Damon's character, comes into town and he's winning everybody over and everybody's falling for the same old tricks and until the town hall meeting when Hal Holbrook, whatever his character's name is, as the high school science teacher stands up and is like, well, I don't think we have all the facts here and sort of gets everybody to come together and well, agree upon a vote. I See, I think, I could be mistaken, but I think what's, what happens in that scene is that you realize that almost everyone there, say 90%, are, are there in protest because Hal Holbrook says... Uh, you just don't know that they're there in protest until he makes yeah. his speech, and so then everyone stands up. You're like, "Oh, these these are the informed people, and nobody's buying into this bullshit that he's selling." Um, and so, so it's it seems like there had already been a big meeting that that Hal Holbrook sort of probably initiated, and and everyone uh, on his side sort of agreed to come to this yeah. uh, thing. But that kind of confusion, I think, well, because it confused me, I think is is interesting. I, I don't think it's really purposeful, but I, I think it is kind of realistic because he, you have all these people that seem like, or that are against it and are sort of saying, We're, mm-hmm. we want to have a vote on it. But then at one point, uh, you know, Matt Damon says, we have 60% of this town, you know, bought and paid for. Um, so there, there's definitely a, a divide, I think, between people. And, you, you know, it plays out in the film, sometimes in sort of comedic ways, sort of like the waitress at the diner who one day he goes in, she's like, the coffee's on me, and then the next day he goes in and she won't even look at him, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, so like, some people are shown as being informed, some as being very pro-fracking because it's going to give them money, and some seem very kind of on the fence or well, sort of and, fickle and about it. and the people, uh, going back to the scene in the gym... Uh, the people that are uh, informed are the or the people that show up are the ones that are informed. That sixty percent that's bought and paid for, there's no way they're showing up to this. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't give a shit. They're like, like you know planning their trip to Myrtle Beach, or right? Whatever. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, Hal Holbrook's character. Um, I think it's interesting also that. He uh, takes, always makes me think of Captain Fantastic. Like interesting is a it's a nothing word, meaningless, it's a non-word. Um, but the fact that his character is uh, he's retired and is teaching high school science for fun because he like worked for Boeing for all this time and got his PhD from Cornell and went to MIT and all this. And he's supposed to be this brilliant engineer guy. Um, and I, I don't know something about that didn't really work for me because he's he's the one that kind of has the sense to stand up and make the argument but then when he's making the argument it's not like he's hitting them with all this like science he's just giving them kind of common sense stuff like mm-hmm. I saw on the internet that this is bad and contaminates water supplies right and he's like hey I encourage you to google this because because yeah. googling will never steer you wrong 
Um, but yet he's supposed to be this like genius, and the only reason—it's kind of presented that way. Of like the only reason he could pull this off is because he's secretly a genius, right? And also, this movie is you know very of the people. This is about the decency of the common hardworking folk of America who need the uh, the geniuses from MIT to tell them that fracking is dangerous. Uh, yeah. It's a. There's some, some loose. Loose writing, I, I think it, it's not as not as tight as it not as tight buttholes as it could be. Pretty pretty loose butthole. Yeah, probably. pretty loose butthole. But uh, I, I do think that that final. The movies the movie is all about that final twist because, you have to. Rewatch the movie in light of that, because anything that comes off a little bit all shucks or naive about Krasinski is not just problematized, but overturned by by the twist, and you realize that you. I mean, you like Krasinski, or you're supposed to. And you realize that all of that, everything he's done to gain your support and trust is puppetry. You know, it's, it's an act. And, and so the, this corporation, Global, so completely understands the, the context, the situation that they're in that they can use uh, you know going back to the to the waitress in the diner you know she's clearly having this sort of roller coaster of emotions between Steve and uh, Dustin Noble okay. Noble from Global uh, but but it's kind of sad when you think about her being uh, you know she's so she, you know free coffee for Steve and then um Dustin came in, so so no more free coffee for Steve. But it's kind of sad to think how that's all bullshit. You know, in her mind, there's yeah. this there's this huge sort of uh, shift that's happened, but it's not a real shift. Uh, and so that's what I mean when you, when I say you have to rewatch the movie, understanding who uh, Dustin is, and see that it is kind of fucked up what the what the story's saying. That all your emotions are you know the whole arc of this story is complete bullshit um, and and any real feeling you felt watching the movie was complete bullshit uh, that the sort of unseen corporate hand has directed um, so there's I mean like I said there's there's problems the, the writing's not great but I, I do think the movie's worth watching twice because of that twist, because of what you find out that recasts the first hour and 30 minutes in a different life. Yeah. And I, the, that twist is kind of infuriating in a number of ways. Like, So the twist is the pictures that John Krasinski's character, Dustin, has been using of dead cows on dairy farms are 
faked or fabricated. Well, not even fake. No, they're just no. not from a different that's, part of that's the country. That's the fake twist. That's yeah. that's what they. That's like the pre-twist twist. They, the pre-twist, they, yeah. And, yeah. But then the the real twist is that he's working for Global, right? And, and so and so he and so the pre-twist was fabricated. Yeah. Is yeah. Um, and, and so that, like you're saying, implies that getting all these people to care about their land and care about their water supply and think that fracking is more dangerous than, than they've been led to believe um, is somehow canceled out by the fact that this guy was using doctored photos. And, and, I, and I think that that is part of the point. I think that's a conscious point that the film makes is that it's not about the information or the substance of what's happening. It's 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 almost like a imagine Steve versus Dustin in a political election, you know, which is, pretty, is what it is, right? You just have to make them look bad. It doesn't matter what they're saying or how relevant what they're saying is to these people's lives. Like you said, somehow fracking's not bad because this dude lies. <laughs> because about they showed picture. you pictures from a different place, exactly where it, where it did the thing. yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, oh, that's not Nebraska. Well, this is bullshit. Clearly, yeah, frack um, away. But but yeah, it is a it literally is a political campaign because the town's going to vote, and so you know Steve decides to put together a a county fair that gets rained out, and Dustin's like, well, they both go to sing karaoke, and it, it, it so it's implying this throughout the whole movie that you have to earn the trust of these simple people, and how do you do that? It's well, go to the bar and drink with them, have coffee with them more, and sing karaoke and make an ass of yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, give them money, have a fair where they can ride a tilt a whirl or whatever. Um, and the whole time, that's what he says. He says you got to let them know what it feels like to have some money before when he makes by, the carnival. Yeah, by having a bouncy castle, <laughs> yeah. that'll show them what it's like to have money. You know, the rich in their enclaves with their fancy wine and bouncy house houses. Uh, but yeah, the whole the the townspeople, apart from. Hal Holbrook and, and Alice Rosemary DeWitt and, and a f- couple other people are so are shown as being this kind of amorphous blob of simplicity <laughs> and, and yeah. very fickle and you have to try to like you know convince it that you're authentic and that you too are the salt of the earth and that kind of stuff that's why they go to the store and they buy the flannel and all that shit mm-hmm. and, um, yeah it's, it's about it's about Images, mm-hmm. what what your image communicates. Uh, yeah, the sort of the whole movie is kind of about political power of images in a way. And that's in well, we already kind of talked about it, but that's what um, Matt Damon lays out at the beginning when he's at the dinner with the executive from Global or whatever, and he asks him how he how do you make so many sales and how do you get people to take such a low number? And he's like, well, you know, because I. I fit in with them and right. I understand them and that sort of thing. Um, I'm using my powers for evil, basically. And he says, I'm not selling global, I'm selling a way out or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's kind of, that scene at the end is so great when Matt Damon's defeated and he's like sitting at the dinner table with Hal Holbrook and his wife and he's like, what would you do if you got the money? He's like, I'd get the fuck out of here and I'd go. And at one point, Hell Holbrook's just like, well, where would everybody go? That, that's a good moment, yeah. Where like, would we all go? Like you're saying, we should all get out, but go where? Right. Like, you're you're upset that the town died, where you, you, this is the same thing. You give the money and they all leave, and then 
it's gone. That's and gone then too. It's so. so it's so strange to me, and I brought this up earlier, but like, it, it's almost like the character Steve doesn't think back far enough. Like, this movie is is very much pro sort of agrarian, sort of old school community, uh, small town America. Yeah, and. And it's like in Steve Butler's mind, that is connected to industry. And he's like, when the industry left, the town died. It's like, go back further and see that when the town came to rely on this imported industry, that is when it sealed its own fate. Uh, And so I don't know why in that character's mind... He sort of, it's like he conflates like agrarianism and and like early industrialism um, or yeah. like or like factory town I mean that those are not the same thing at all yeah and that's that kind of struck me with kind of the aesthetic look of the movie too because at once Steve's character is both he both comes from a far or felled farming community and a felled industrial community sort of the same they kind of smashed them together that's what I'm saying yeah and there are some parts in the movie where I'd be watching it and it would be like a you know a shot of them driving through town or whatever and it to me looked a lot like a bunch of like uh, you know run down rust belt cities so you know I had a bunch of family in southern Ohio and we would go up through like Portsmouth and all these places that are kind of in that little corner with uh, West Virginia and Kentucky and it looked like that these old like former industrial towns that are just kind of hanging on by the skin of their teeth now um, just from an aesthetic viewpoint so it does seem like in writing it they just kind of made Steve all of that at once so that mm-hmm. he could sort of be all the things that they needed mm-hmm. but even in the, the scene the, the fuck you money scene in the bar he's explaining to them, well, you know, you're all farmers and you're probably all on subsidies and what happens when that dries up and, you know, whichever frozen pea company is buying your crop at the time. Um, so he seems to have have all this knowledge, but sort of never knows when to use it correctly or, like, doesn't really know how to reference back to it properly. Or, or, yeah, that's what, what I'm saying is, like, he won't go back far enough and say, and see the industry seems to be the real villain he's he's after not um, not the death of industry you know what I'm saying yeah. he, it's like he thinks industry can just last forever and, and he can't see that it, there's it's an inevitable doom to rely on some sort of manufacturing uh, enterprise in a small town like uh, I don't know. It, it they just conflate the sentimentalization of agriculture and industry into this one weird thing, yeah. um, and it's just not doesn't seem logically conflatable. And it, and maybe this is how they meant it, but it it's never really made explicit. But maybe Steve is meant to be sort of the latest in a generate and th- these generations of the sort of men in his family that have gone through these things so uh, I only say that because there's a scene where they say like wasn't your daddy a farmer and he says my grandfather 
So maybe it's supposed to be implied that like his grandfather was a farmer and then his father was like a factory worker and now he's doing this thing. Like he's the one that got out and uh, even says at the beginning like I'm the I'm one of like three people from a high school that got a degree in something other than agriculture mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Um, but like I said, none that's all speculation. <laughs> like right. it makes sense, but it's not really super yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. super clear in the movie. Um, but just kind of goes back to the idea that that he keeps saying of you know getting out and well, well where do people go? And when you grow up in a, a rural area like that that doesn't really have a lot going on for it that is kind of the dream you grow up with is like I'm gonna turn 18 I'm gonna go to college I'm gonna get out of here I'm gonna go to the city or whatever and then you get to the city and you're like okay well what do I do now I'm just in a different place to kill myself yeah like I'm just in a different place with a different set of problems I was reading the Wikipedia article for schizophrenia today Um, (laughs) I don't need to explain to you why Uh, but it I was looking at um, like things that can contribute to a higher chance of schizophrenia and one of them was uh growing up in a city which i thought was fascinating like i I don't know why but i kind of want to learn more about it there's there's a lot of interesting stuff uh uh in like freudian psychology with the city and like his theories on agoraphobia and all these sort of fundamental mental illnesses and in relation to like crowded uh crowded city spaces so, it, so that's kind of what you're, what a Steve Butler would be pushing people toward of like, get out of here and go to where? Go to the city where I can, you know, barely afford like a little cracker box apartment and have a job that I fucking hate. It, just, it makes me think I have this uh, framed picture, which you've seen uh, in my house. It's a Dave Eggers drawing uh, of a bat with his wings spread and it just says go to the city in your car <laughs> um, and, and it feels like the bat is sort of making fun of you for going to the city in your car when he's yeah. this like majestic animal flying around caves and mountains and things it's a in America we've never been able and probably will never be able to master kind of the best of both worlds so it, the one that I always think of is transportation and that in a big city, you can, you know, take the train or take a cab or you can just walk, right? Um, but for a vast majority of America, if you don't own a car, you're just kind of fucked and you don't, you can't have a job or you right. can't go anywhere. Um, you know, especially in Middle Tennessee, it's one of the most car-dependent places I can yeah, think of. Like Nashville, for example, there's no public. I mean, there's a bus, but it'll take you like 40 hours right. to get right. So, so even even in places where there could be public transportation, there's not. And that's what uh, back during the uh, the mayoral election in Nashville, because the uh, Democratic mayor who had run on a campaign of "I'm going to improve public transportation in Nashville," uh, embezzled a bunch of money and had an affair with like her bodyguard or whatever yeah and uh ruined democracy in tennessee for the foreseeable future yep um and then got replaced with some like just horrible person who was running on uh we don't need that we just need better roads we, back to normal yeah um so there will be no that's the problem transportation. with uh crowded streets is the roads aren't big enough yeah if you make the lanes wider yeah 
be better. I don't even think it's. I don't even think her platform was more roads. It was let's just improve the ones we have. So it's like okay, so now there's just going to be construction, even more construction all the time. Yeah. Um, but you know that's that's every city. I mean that's even L.A. like major American city, and it's completely based on the automobile. Somewhere in a Curtis White book, he says cities are uh, systems to maintain inequality. Uh, he said that is how they were formed and that is what they continue to do. Yeah. It is a place where people who own the means of production house their workers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, in, in, in Promised Land, no such city. <laughs> we just got super fucking bleak right there. And then you could like hear us try to like wrestle with that and then bring it back to the movie. You hear the little canary in our heart just like <laughs> dying. Just passing out. Um, but th- this movie does kind of seem like um, the town from Coldwood from uh, October Sky sort of growing up to become a town like this or you know, something like this yeah. um, and the fact that it seems like the only way these small towns can survive is to have some sort of exploitative industry like this come in otherwise it's just you know scrapping and scrounging to try to try to live in them and then all the kids or at least the kids that can manage it leave and go somewhere else and uh, you have a, a brain drain or just a general drain of people and you end up with just like bitter old farmers who, uh, well, now just end up killing themselves based on a lot of stories yeah. that I've been seeing. Uh, it, it makes me think too of uh, Wendell Berry's fiction, which we've mentioned a few times on this podcast, where a lot of his fiction is kind of a record of like how these, uh, for instance, the town in, in Promised Land come to be yeah. uh, or came to be. And, and I'll, he places plenty of the blame on the sort of PR campaign to make it seem normal for, you know, you you leave your hometown, you go to college, and you participate in the global economy, and that is how you mature, and that is what you're you, supposed to do. Um, you go to the city in your car. Go to the city in your car. Uh, yeah, and, and he... I think he uses the phrase like uh, middle of nowhere. He sort of deconstructs that phrase middle of nowhere and yeah. shows how kind of naive it is. It's like, yeah, everywhere is nowhere. <laughs> you know? yeah, n- nobody wants to live in the middle of nowhere, right? right? Either you grew up in an urban area and you're like, oh, why would I ever do that? Or you grew up in the middle of nowhere and you're like, why would I want to go back to that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, all the, the possible merits of it are left out because I can't go to the mall or um, they don't have Bojangles there <laughs> like what, whatever it may be right. and that, it's so interesting how, how people sort of define you hear it all the time like like what, what's there to do there like when, when someone's uh, considering a place to move you know what's there to do there what, what you really mean is like is there good live music are there bars are there coffee shops it's like is your life really that different based on whether or not there's a great bar or a great coffee shop 
or a movie theater. It's like, you know what will still be there? Netflix and all the <laughs> shit that you do instead of going Right. How, how about, like, the people that you love are there? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I just, I just, I'm not sure how that meme sort of continues. It, it's just so surface, unchecked, surface level kind of shit you'd see in a movie that, that you hear, you know, people actually say. Uh, it's like, oh, I'm thinking of moving there because they've got great bars it's like oh great you can puke all night now <laughs> like great you know uh, but but I do think that I mean you 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 look at a city like Nashville which has grown quite a bit in the last 20 years uh, and that's largely I mean how they entice people to move there is making cool little places you know all the shit that like people that actually live in Nashville just can't stand like honky tonks and cowboy hats right well yeah that's the tourist thing but but I mean their bars have improved their uh, you know just general things to do Uh, it's also my theory that like Nashville is the uh, cool hip modern Christian capital of the country Christian hipster is a real thing happening in the world right now yeah Uh, particularly where we are yeah. uh, it's 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 very seems to be very popular there's a lot of like well you know I go to I'm Christian but I'm cool right I drink craft beer and play in a band right I, I, well, I'm not gonna and uh, it's not even worship music exactly it's like I won't give you my testament until I've had three beers uh, <laughs> I have tattoos Sierra but they're all was. bible verses right uh, <laughs> that, that, no, that's a good marker yeah I have tattoos but they're bible verses yeah uh, yeah, and, and the only problem with that is how it is often a, it's more about an image of themselves and, and just utterly um, anti-intellectual in a lot of ways. You know, it's like, oh, it doesn't matter what what the problems with this are. Um, I- anyway. Like the... the uh phenomenon of the Christian coffee sh- coffee house, coffee shop. Sure, sure. Um, and, and it's just like cool to be seen there with like... Your study Bible. <laughs> your study Bible, and you're like listening to Ryan Adams, you know, uh, which is you know, problematic in the Yeah, it's secular, now. but it's spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's, it's like it's always people meeting to like talk about their walk. Like there's nothing that'll you know, <laughs> a walk to remember. <laughs> there's it pisses me off the jargon. And it's it's just just it's just in uh, what do you call it? inside baseball. It's just this, this these phrases that you like can a, use the, the to word shibboleth. <laughs> it's just phrases to use uh, to let people know that you you're sort of in. You get it. Yeah. Uh, which is completely contrary to everything that they're saying they believe in, uh, in terms of you know forming some sort of in group. Uh, so I just really like my friends because we challenge each other each other with scripture. You know, like, <laughs> like literally we have scripture contests over hot chocolate and Sierra Nevada torpedo IPA. We uh, <laughs> uh no, we uh, this past weekend. We'll be making fun of Christians for the rest of this uh, episode. Now we'll just say this: like this past weekend, when uh, uh, 
me and Lava were in Alabama and we were at this coffee shop and there was this couple sitting behind this older couple and the lady's just reading I don't know maybe it was her husband I'm not sure reading him this article about some like some Christian thing I was kind of just like catching a word every now and then and it just sounded very like jargony and mm-hmm. uh, we know God's will for us is that we would live in the light no, you know, this kind of shit and she would read for a few for like a minute or so and then she would stop and there'd be like a little bit of silence and then the guy would like give his take on what she just said and he'd be like you know I think that is what he wants for us in marriage <laughs> that kind of thing um, and it was just so kind of bizarre to me yeah. I don't know I, I wasn't I didn't man to you that probably seems I was gonna say that doesn't seem that bizarre to me but Uh, to me like I didn't grow up in I grew up in a very like secular house so for me it's like that's a little it makes me uncomfortable it's like that should be that's like bedroom talk like you keep that to yourself I know exactly what you mean but I yeah I think I have been exposed to it quite a bit more Um, and, and let me just say strange a lot of the you know some of the people we've mentioned on this podcast are uh, the thinkers are devout Christian thinkers, uh, and and I think it's very interesting that a lot of uh, environmentalists kind of have a, a sort of if if they're not Christians, they don't they're not actively seeking to refute the tenets of Christianity because an intellectual understanding uh, of Christianity is not inconsistent with environmental aims, and you see that very clearly in Wendell Berry. Uh, and, and someone I'm just recently getting into is uh, Marilyn Robinson, uh, who's, um, you know, who has kind of similar ideas. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of really smart people who I identify as Christians and whose ideas are not destructive to the planet. Um, it's that idea of dominion that we talked about forever ago but keeps coming up is yeah. the idea that you know you have dominion over the beasts and the land and all that and it, it's really perverse to take that as automatically meaning well that means I can do whatever the fuck I want and I can and it's really it's, it. to me it, it feels more than anything like like laziness like intellectual laziness just the world is right and I can continue living how it feels how, how I feel like I should live just driven by my own ego, you know. Um, that That's what uh, I think sort of mainstream shitty Christians, uh, that, that's why they're that way, is because it's a lack of courage uh, in a lot of ways. It's not oh, I've thought about this and this is the right way. It's, I don't want to think about this because I'm a fucking coward. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not doing their utmost for his highest. <laughs> they are, I mean, you. so many people outsource, uh, and I don't choose that word arbitrarily, outsource their spiritual lives to the fucking random guy who happens to be the preacher at their church. Whatever this fucker says. Or someone on TV, even worse, yeah. <laughs> but it just seems so strange to me how, how willingly people outsource this supposedly primary uh, experience in their lives to, to just 
some one guy's interpretation, and, and I don't say the word guy arbitrarily either. It's almost always a man. <laughs> yeah. It's interpretation of these, you know, ancient texts. It's just, it's fucking insanity. <laughs> uh, it really is. And we're surrounded by it. Uh, and again, yeah. listen carefully because I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I just spent five minutes saying there's a lot of uh, merit, I think, in in a lot of these Christian thinkers' ideas environmentally, but that's not what's happening in church. Um, that is not what's happening, not even close to what's happening in just it, random church you pick. And interestingly enough, it kind of makes me think also of, uh, we're just going to talk about everything but the movie. Yeah. It makes me think of... Well, Promised um, Land is biblical. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it, it makes me think of... Um, something I'm more familiar with and more comfortable talking about, which is uh, college classrooms and how we've talked about this before of like the, the right far right kind of caricature of the college campus is that it's all radical feminists and they're all learning how to burn flags and all this kind turning of shit. Turning you gay. Yeah, turning you into to gay feminist um, cyborgs gay, or whatever. Gay theists. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Double threat. But really that's, that's not at all what's going on and we've talked about how in reality there's a very conservative kind of vein in most universities and colleges that is very much toe the line don't you know don't upset anyone because students are customers and if they don't pay then we don't we don't make money that sort of shit and and it kind of makes me think of this in a way it's kind of related to what you're talking about of um what people can get if they engage with religion and sort of do their own kind of thinking and try to sort of live in a way that's not directly oppositional to most of the world and the world itself um, versus, you know, what they're getting at church. Well, there's a similar kind of thing of, you know, go to college, I guess. It's fine. But you can get a lot out of just like engaging with these thinkers and with these texts and with these ideas outside of this context of I have to learn this so I can write about it on the test and get an A and get the credits and, and go on to the next that's a That's a very good comparison to make because it's like uh, school whatever, you know, whatever iteration of school you're in should be the community uh, for your intellectual life the same way church is supposed to be the community for your spiritual life. Uh, but rather than being some sort of supplement and, you know, uh, a sort of uh, coming together of, of interested parties, both of these things have become, uh, they've been mistaken for the things, the thing itself. You know, so, so education is school. Uh, spirituality is church. Um, that's just crazy because I mean these are just you know man-made institutions um, that I think at their best are meant to foster the individual sort of experiential uh, kind of journey but that's just not how people think about it uh, if, if they ever did they certainly don't think about it like that in, in the case of church or school anymore and it's kind of funny that um, just talking about podcasts I feel like a lot of people are more likely to listen to a podcast about something than they would be to like learn about it 
in school, if that makes sense. So I listen to a lot yeah, of uh, just just by virtue of it coming from school, it's discredited. <laughs> yeah, so it's I, like I never show, I never, uh, I never want to show a movie in in a class that I really love uh, because I don't want the students to associate it with school. You know what I'm saying? Like I'll recommend it to them yeah. after class, but I won't show it in class because then it's just any sting it has is just negated because it came from school. So it has yeah. to suck. And that's been a lot of, you know, been, when I've taught novels that I really like, I'll just tell them before we start reading it. It'll be like, I really like this book. So, um, so don't so, hurt my feelings. So like, if you don't like it, that's fine. But just know that I, I really am a fan of it. Um, and I'd really appreciate it if you like gave it your time and like engaged with it and actually read the damn thing that that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know we were talking about this idea of um, I was going to connect this to the movie somehow and now I forgot how I was going to do it. Um, so an interesting scene that happens really quickly, but I think is important, is at the end when Steve has gone into the the assembly and he's told everyone like. Dustin works for Global and none of this matters and like gets fired from his job and all that shit. And he goes outside to um, Frances McDormand's character, Sue, and she says, well, of course you're fired and they want me to come to the city and it's implied that she's going to get his job and get promoted and all that. And uh, he says, well, you know, that's great. Good for you. And then she, she's kind of sitting and she can tell that, you know, he's just said all like why their job is bullshit and she's sitting there about to like move up to the next rung of it she she goes it's just a job and that's kind of her point the whole time yeah she says that a few times yeah. and and you see um, the same the same way Steve keeps repeating I'm not a bad man yeah you come to realize that these things that are getting repeated are meant to be overturned by the end of the film you know and they're very kind of subconscious things of right Right, Especially he is Steve. he is a bad man because he's doing bad things on <laughs> yeah. behalf of a bad corporation, uh, and the his need to keep reminding uh, Alice that he's not implies that he is, and the the same way, uh, it's just a job we see is complete bullshit. It's a yeah. it is a job, but it's a bad job. And even how Holbrook uh, in that that kind of heartfelt scene where he's talking to Steve says, you know, we need more people like you. I just wish you weren't doing these things. Like, I wish you had, you were giving yourself to something else that was more, you know, beneficial uh, to humanity. But, you know, Francis McDormand's character is very much, you know, I'm worried about my son who plays baseball. Seems to be all we know about him. And apparently he's good. Um, apparently he just got he just got moved to pitcher because he had a few good relief innings moved to pictures <laughs> <laughs> moved to pictures yeah um, um, yeah it's a uh, I mean everyone thinks their son is good at baseball I think uh, her character is to me the most frustrating character because she just seems the most unwilling to question her assumptions and you can tell she's sort of neurotic because of these things but she just is unwilling to kind of live uh, kind of dangerously in any way you know it's like yeah. this is what I have to do yeah. um, won't even try to get with whatever the I forget that actor's name <laughs> yeah um, the, the, the store owner um, 
in the scene where she goes in before she leaves and gets the pack of gum. He's like, you can just have the gum. Uh, what could have been? Yeah, it's like, oh, you, you idiot. Uh, he's the he owns the one store in town. You could have lived like a queen. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the whole attitude of well, you know this is this is just what I do to earn a living, to provide, to buy my son a new glove or whatever, and then it doesn't reflect at all on my on me morally or ethically. It's kind of her take. And it's kind of Steve's take for it. Well, actually, it's not because Steve the whole time is saying, you know, I'm the good guy because I'm trying to help people out. Right. He at um, least needs the narrative that it is moral in order to do it. And yeah. once that narrative disappears is no longer tenable he he can't do it anymore yeah. whereas Frances McDormand Sue can she knows it's bullshit yeah uh, and she continues to do it and that's why I say it is I just feel like I know her somehow like I that mean, that's, character that's most people yeah you do a job that is just bullshit and harms your soul and harms the environment and harms people around you but you're like it's you like a Flintstones character. It's a living. Kind of like, got to keep doing it. Yeah. Um, and that's something Wendell Berry writes about a lot, about the absence of any sort of moral consideration in terms of employment. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a little bit of, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of class stuff there where it's like, well, a lot of people doing these terrible jobs are really not in a position to... Uh, seek other opportunities because they don't have any other opportunities um, so so obviously it's a bigger problem than oh you should choose a good job because what the fuck is a good job I mean, what is there to do that's any good uh, Jesus um, <laughs> well yeah that you can do profitably I right guess. That, that, that will allow you to you know live in, in some rational definition of yeah. comfortable it's like there's there's a shortage of geriatric physicians because for one nobody wants to work with old people because it's depressing and for two it's very low paid you know what branch of medicine is extremely high paid plastic surgery mm-hmm. uh, they make way more than a lot of other surgeons I mean they just weirdly opened up a big new plastic surgery practice here in town um, which blew my mind of like who the fuck is going here to have this surgery um, but it's that idea of the immoral or the unethical job choice is almost always going to be the one that's going to get you the big house and the nice mm-hmm. car and the vacations that you want and all that sort of stuff whereas if you try to actually help some people usually you're going to just end up poor destitute it's because you're not you're not creating a surplus. You're filling in a lack. You know, like a social worker is not creating a surplus. They are. Yeah. They They're are, doing a vital service, but it's not. Like you're and, and in a lot of ways, on a sort of sociological scale, they are filling in the gap that is exploited by the people creating the surplus and living living so well, uh, well, uh, in quotes. Um, yeah, so so what is a good job? It, it, it's almost I think about it a lot because I mean just just the word job to me sort of implies that it's bad, um, you know. And, and that's not to say work. I think work is good. 
Um, but like a career is a like is a different thing. Career. You never hear someone who has worked at Walmart for thirty years say that this is my career. Right. It's their job. Yeah. Yeah. What is good? If you can, if you can make a career out of good work, I'd say you you're in the you're in the minority. Uh, and that's kind of what is implied that at least some of the people in this town in the movie are doing is they're farmers or whatever it is that they're doing, and it's sort of implied that you know what they're doing is noble work and important work, but they're just the they can't make a living off of it. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, which makes it all the more depressing, right? You have um, because it's been bought and, and is all owned by agribusiness, yeah, you by know. Tyson or <laughs> whatever, right? right. Um, and it's something that uh, Steve talks about a couple of times in the movie is uh, this idea of, of pride, this kind of misplaced pride, which is similar to what we talked about in October Sky. This pride of being a miner and coming from a, a long line of miners and all that kind of stuff. Um, similar here of coming from a long line of farmers and living in this specific kind of way, um, having this kind of lifestyle that is very unique and, and something to you know, latch on to and make a part of your identity. What's well, unique now? Yeah, yeah unique yeah. now. Um, and it, it comes up a few times. One of them is when uh, Scoop McNary, which is a uh, he's a farmer, the farmer that's raising his brother's uh, son because his brother has been killed in, in Fallujah, he says. And that's, it, you know, Steve is there trying to sell him on this this uh, fracking uh, plan. And he's saying, well, you know, this is, it's, it's going to help get us off of foreign oil. And we won't have, you know, we spend $4 billion a year or whatever fighting for oil in this foreign country. And this character says, well, you know, my brother died. In Fallujah, and not work raising his son. You don't need to tell me yeah, about yeah. all that stuff. Um, and instead, what he says is, you know, what am I? If I sell, what do I tell him about what my father left to his father, and what his father is going to leave to him? And you know, how do I explain that I kind of sold this way of life out from under him? Um, which is sort of it, it's meant to be poignant, and it kind of is, but at the same time as Steve points out later, like that way of life is, he says it's dying damn near dead. Like and they are, and, and, and the point he gets punched for in the bar about the subsidies is very true. Yeah. <laughs> and that kid, when he grows up, if he's going to take over the farm, is going to have to deal with all that, all that shit. Um, unless it ends up like interstellar and then everybody's a farmer. And I guess their system was better, yeah. <laughs> but they just couldn't grow be, anything. No more okra though. Yes, yeah. crop of okra. Um, so, it, it, it's a kind of, I think Steve calls it a, a misplaced pride or something, some kind of arrogant pride of, mm-hmm. we have to preserve this way of life, right? Um, you know, and I don't know what the answer would be. I would imagine it'd be something like some kind of evolved form, adapted form of that way of life could, I see no reason why it couldn't exist as if, if it was you know, built into this prevailing order and sort of, uh, they, you know, the government actually does something to make this system tenable and not crushing for these people. Mm-hmm. That kind of yeah, thing. it would involve, within that scenario, it would involve ethical choices being made by corporate CEOs. Yeah. And that's never going to happen. Some kind of, 
new deal that had a green angle to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know. Alas. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, like, World War Three, because of all the stuff with uh, Iran. Yeah. Um, and how all these psychos and government are sort of beating these war drums and trying to convince people that this is the new hot war to be a fan of. And even they seem kind of, like, bored of it. Um, I heard an interview on NPR, and I wish I could remember who it was, but it was some um, sort of Republican politician who was uh, talking about how this was irreprehensible and Iran must be held to account and he sounded so bored <laughs> trying to do it but I was thinking and of it like, says here it's uh, reprehensible and uh, and how you know <clears throat> after 9-11 we, you could have told us we have to go to war with the moon and we would have done it right and it kind of makes me think like thank god no one is on board with this now but then thinking about um, how that kind of mobilization effort would never be able to take place now that wouldn't, you know, World War Three breaks up. Well, first off, if it's a nuclear war, it doesn't matter. It lasts, like, two seconds and everybody dies anyway. But if it took any sort of, like, mass mobilization, like New Age Rosie the Riveter stuff, like that would just never happen. Well, and specifically right now because it would all be mediated through Trump, you know, as this sort of figurehead. And he's just... The sort of epitome of polarization, you know. Yeah. So if he says, if he takes a stance on something, over half the country is going to take the opposite stance. So yeah, there's no mass mobilization happening anytime soon uh, for anything, even for something like the Green New Deal, uh, which would you know have to happen. Um, but it sort of seems like it's like oh well, we came together. Uh, for World War II there's um, uh, because you know we had to defeat evil and we had to do the right thing it's like well saving the planet's kind of the right thing to do so why couldn't we come together for that mm-hmm. um, anyway I don't know there's, I know it's more complicated than that right just so, something I've been thinking about um, and the fact that the Iranian military is people don't understand that they actually have a competent military <laughs> and it wouldn't be like Jarhead that's another one we need to maybe take a look at that's got some some oil a little bit oil implications a little bit of oil yeah Kuwait um, I'm trying to think. I feel like there was something else we a good moment <clears throat> this is just in reference to nothing, a good moment in uh, Promised Land is when Steve is over at Alice's house and she's explaining why she lets her students come uh, to her house and garden. And she says, "I'm not teaching them to farm or garden. I'm teaching them to take how to take care of something." And that's a that's a good thought. I feel like we've. Uh, <clears throat> Maybe it was with Interstellar when we talked about how that movie kind of argues against, weirdly, uh, care. It's just like it associates like stewardship and care with sort of uh, the feminine and then utterly rejects the feminine. 
and so it's just nice to uh, to see a character in a movie uh, Alice who is just very explicitly making a case for uh, taking care <clears throat> and it's even I think maybe even more persuasively um, argued for in the scene where Steve kind of just stumbles into a hard day's work when he's setting up this carnival <laughs> you know he doesn't expect it he's doing it for the wrong reasons but he actually ends up doing <clears throat> work with these uh, you know these guys who volunteer their help setting up this festival or whatever and then <clears throat> there's that kind of lovely shot of him in the back of a truck which is you know sentimentalized but whatever um, like a country song yeah, back on my pickup. Exactly. No but, shirt. But it's a it's a it's a nice moment nonetheless, and and it makes you sort of feel that feeling of the satisfaction of a of a day's work, yeah. and and that sort of that scene seems really small, but it's really kind of the backbone of of the way of life that is yeah. being argued for to to protect. Um, is that communal good hard work yeah. uh, and it's the, I sound distinct. like my grand you know no, actually, I, I don't <laughs> even sound like my don't raise a barn like they used to yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's the same scene where uh, you know he's throwing those hay bills around and then he goes to the water pump and he goes to like drink some of the water and Sue's like don't drink that <laughs> yes she's got her little like bottle of water uh-huh. um, but that's you know, and it's tied to the idea that fracking would pollute the water and, and make it flammable, like you right. see in Gaslamp. I was going to say, we haven't really talked about fracking that much, but, I mean, go watch Gaslamp. Yeah. Uh, I'd encourage all our listeners to, to Google it. Um, Gaslamp 2, Gaslander. <laughs> That's, uh, Gaslamp 2 was uh, sort of interesting because he adds this international angle and goes to Australia and goes to that dude's... Uh, I guess station is what they call them there, their farms, and uh, does the gasland thing where he like lights the pipe on fire and you see it shooting up. Um, is it? Is it? I can't remember if it's Naomi Klein or Rob Nixon. Something, some big environmental book I read was talking about why that movie, why Gasland is so effective, and it's because he or she, whoever it is, says uh, because of that iconic image of yeah. lighting I mean what would without that moment of lighting water on fire I don't think that movie gets talked about no. but it, people have that one thing to latch on to uh, and it's just a powerful thing to see and it just immediately communicated everything that the rest of the movie is trying to sort of support yeah it's that kind of environmental uncanny thing that you know Ghost talks about has a new a new novel by the way. Oh really? Uh, Gun Island, I believe it's called. Gun, Gun Island. Island. I think that's the title. I'm gonna have to read it here soon. But okay, um, this is America. <laughs> uh, but so he, you know he talks about the his example was the uh, the cyclone in in uh, in Twister. Calcutta, I oh. believe. Um, but it comes up with things like lighting water on fire or. You see the pictures of Katrina or New Orleans after Katrina, where you see like the Superdome 
underwater or, you know, Hurricane Sandy or, you know, any of these, um, the wildfires in California, mm-hmm. when you see them and it looks like hell, um, yeah. literally, um, that kind of thing of, of... So you believe in a literal hell. <laughs> <laughs> that, that kind of uh, discomfort that you feel of uh, seeing, seeing a thing that in your mind should not be, right? And part of it is that it is really shocking and otherworldly and terrifying. And another part is that we've been slow to adapt that this is just what reality is like now. Like mm-hmm. these wildfires in California are going to keep happening and probably get worse. So that's just how life is now, right? It um, reminds me of like the, the pictures of the polar bears that have become, that, that are in the early days kind of were that uncanny yeah, sort of oh my god and now it's become a cliche mm-hmm. and so you wonder like <clears throat> I mean what is uh, does the ability to turn catastrophe into cliche suffer any limitations you know like is the uh, is a forest fire going to become kind of banal yeah like uh, boring yeah smoke inhalation boring and, and, and I, I, I say that sort of cynically, but I, I, I'm not sure that that's untrue. And like I said, I don't really share the... Op- I've said this in an earlier episode. I don't really share the optimism of people who think that um, climate change will assert itself so drastically um, that there will be a day when it's undeniable. I think it will always be deniable because people get used to things so quickly and are sort of wired to get used to things. And, and so it doesn't matter if the fucking world is on fire. It, that'll just be the world. It won't be climate change. Uh, <laughs> Back in my day, the world wasn't on fire. Shut up, old man. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah. I was going to say something. I forgot what it was. Um, shit how do you like them apples <laughs> oh it was going to be good too damn it. oh it was going to be great people were going to talk about it for uh, I mean you were probably going to get famous for whatever it was you had in your mind fuck. it's gone it's gone forever like <laughs> I'll literally never think of it oh that's um, a bummer <laughs> yeah um Anyway, maybe it'll come to me later. But what do you, I want to. What do you think the movie's called? Promised Land. I don't know. It seems. It seems like it could have been fleshed out, but it just kind of was slapped on there and then, then never really followed through on. Because it, it does imply a sort of biblical illusion, um, but maybe referring to you know Steve's whole idea of. Um, I just remembered what I was going to say, so let me write it down real fast. Um, Steve's whole idea of um, being able to go back to this this sort of small town, you know, good old good old way of living you know, hard work that is meaningful and communal, that sort of thing Um, but, you know, the the film also like we've talked about, implies that that's kind of gone, or at Mm -hmm. least on the verge of, of going extinct um could also mean, you know, fracking coming in and it's going to give you $2 million and then you can go and do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, you know, the, the, 
the wealth you've been promised that you aren't able to get from the land because sure. you're not exploiting it in the right kind of way. Right. Um, so once you do that, then you'll you'll get your heap of money and get to you get your your uh, fuck you money and get to go build your McMansion and all that. In New Jersey. In New Jersey, uh, and I'm not real sure. I think I don't know. It just seems like a good title, doesn't it? When you see it, you're like, yeah, it seems appropriate, yeah. but it doesn't really fit. I don't think too much with the movie. Yeah, I'm not sure. I have to think about it more. But what I was gonna yeah, say the thing. I say what I was going to say was I was um, it, we were talking about how there's never these things, images, these kind of uncanny images become cliches, and you may not unless there's just some sort of day after tomorrow thing that happens. Like it's never going. There's never going to be that kind of tipping point where now everybody's on board with this. Um, I was thinking that we need some sort of new, new sincerity or like new, new sincerity because you know you had uh, David Foster Wallace and those guys, and he kind of, sort of ruined it by writing this giant book that became kind of a a running joke to people who have never read it and don't really care about it, and then um, you know also killing himself. So it's like, oh well, of course the guy that was all for sincerity ended up hanging himself right um, but now you have writers and I would count Edgar's as one of them who do you know dabble in being sincere about things and, and not being too overly ironic too irony poisoned or, or anything like that right, um, right. And, and Edgar's even makes a distinction um, in, in an interview about his his first book uh, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius where he says it's not about rejecting irony it's about uh about believing that there is an appropriate use for irony um, so that there there are things worth kind of arguing for and of course irony is a tool um, that writers have at their disposal but what's being rejected is this sort of hip ironic detachment uh, and kind of nihilism of what you know David Foster Wallace talks about a lot is the kind of hip postmodernism of the, especially the late 60s and 70s, um, where like the point of the book is just the book, you know, Uh, and it's very self referential, it's very self aware, and it's very aware of itself as a commodity and basically signifies nothing. Um, and so um, the new sincerity is the idea that there is a way not to reject irony but to uh, account for it and to move beyond it Um, and and Edgar certainly tries to do that in a, in a lot of the books he's written, and, and his newest, his newer fiction is kind of uh, very. You know, his early stuff is is criticized as pretentious, and and in some ways it is because it's. I mean, his memoir is about himself, and uh, but it's not. Anyway, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about it. But his later stuff is very issue based. The circle is sort of, you know. Uh, Kind of similarly about corporate manipulation and its impact on everything, especially privacy. 
uh, hologram for the king is kind of about globalization and the death of American manufacturing and that book holds no illusions uh, about a revitalization of that paradigm at all and that's sort of what I I really like that book because it feels like someone's just kind of telling you the truth uh, as opposed to selling you a story about you know how things are going to be uh, and if we ever do a uh, what did you call it anthroposynthesis anthroposynthesis yeah um we would have to maybe do Zaytun, um, because I, it's a book that I've, I've taught once to a bunch of high school kids who sort of were into it, got really it's, angry about it. That that's one of the, uh, that book made me have one of those sort of physical, like visceral responses of any book I've ever read. I was like sweating while I was reading it. It's it, and you know, Edgar's kind of gets in a little bit of of trouble for telling other people's stories. Um, or you know what I mean like he, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. sort of uh, accused of uh, profiting the, off these people's they, pain they call and it stuff. the white savior complex yeah. but I will say that he's very good at it and, and in Zaytun it's a story that I think is vitally important mm-hmm. and it, it at least in my mind and I think with a lot of other people that kind of write it off as being a book that's oh it's about Katrina but no it's about America it's about the government the it's institution about, of America yeah Fucking you in the ass is what like. It's more about. about the Patriot Act than it is about Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, um, and it, you know, and, and it's, a, that, it's about disaster. Yeah, you know, disaster uh, capitalism and disaster uh, security and like the privatization of police uh, of security in these. Yeah, and how yeah. America ultimately gives zero fucks about family or any or yeah. uh, work working hard or like does not matter at all and it's it's weird weirdly similar to the to the point we were making about promised land earlier about how oh because this guy dustin lied fracking's not fracking doesn't matter oh so yeah the uh so so in a sort of meta commercial aspect uh i believe his name is abdul raham zaytun abdul raham zaytun uh, he was accused of like Conspiring to, to kill his have wife, have his wife murdered. Yeah, in, in real life. After the the book has been published. Yeah, and so so uh, so many people have just completely discredited the book, as if America didn't, you know, the government didn't <laughs> ruin this man's this man. life. It's yeah. like this happened before. Uh, and yeah, and it's just it's just really unfortunate for the for all the issues in the book that that happened. Mm-hmm. You know fuck that guy but it's it's no reason to to think that what the book's about is you know somehow untrue because that happened yeah and it's sort of like uh, so when I taught the book I I tried to keep that under wraps and I was going to bring it up like when we finished the book but one of my students googled stuff and like found out about it and brought it that's, in class that's, that's the first thing you'll read if you google yeah. it you know? and, and I told them I was like well let's wait and see let's read the book and then see what we think about it and so we get to the end and sucked <laughs> we sort of get to this point where it's like like you're saying we you can't condone someone you know allegedly doing these things right um but I was like, well, but can you see how all these events are connected and how here's a man who comes to, literally accomplishes the American dream. 
like to a T, like works hard, owns small, his own owns business, his own small business, has these daughters, provides for his family, raises his kids, all this bullshit. Um, and then the government comes in and just fucking wrecks it, like destroys all of it. And then they get back together, but you know, it's never going to be the same. And then eventually at least his point. And so like, yeah, you can't say that what he did is justified in any kind of way, but right. you see the connections. It's sort of like arguments I get made about, uh, Richard Wright's native son of like bigger Thomas brutally murders this woman. Right. Um, but the point of the book is that all these, this, you know, incredibly oppressive system is sort of like applied so much pressure that it's brought him to this point. Um, and I don't know, it's just sort of fascinating to think about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Zaytun, really good, uh, good book. That's it will make you think less of the country. <laughs> I think. Yeah, uh, and and back to to Promise Land, like we said, it's you know based on a or, or the story was done by Dave Eggers, and Eggers seemed to me seems a little uncomfortable with environmental issues, and and I say that only because. He's written a lot of books, and none of them have really been about anything yeah. environmental. And he seems much more comfortable in the realm of human rights. And of course, there's all these, a lot of overlap yeah. with you know with that. But he's not. I uh, definitely would not place him anywhere near the camp of an environmental writer. Um, but the the point I'm making is that, like like Ghost sort of implies in that. I think we might have played a clip in one episode. The problems of climate change imply a complete rethinking and restructuring of like everything. Everything we've, the history of thought has brought us to this point. Um, And so when when you're talking about changes that need to happen to make the world sustainable, and I hate that word, livable, um, might be a better word. Um, you're 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 talking about uh, prison reform. You're talking about uh, just a complete political restructuring. You're talking about a green new deal, uh, income inequality. Right. Be, be, uh, and, and really I, what made me think of that is your point about how these these sort of big catastrophic things can lead to very sort of seemingly personal uh, tragedies or, or whatever you want to call yeah. it uh, and they're not they're not separate issues uh, you are not the same person after what happens to Zaytun in, in yeah. the book happens and, and in the book it's even like made a direct a direct connection is made between the way he's treated and the way that the average prisoner at Angola, I believe, which is, you know, the largest prison in the country in Louisiana, uh, are treated on a daily basis, right? And you can imagine when you literally dehumanize a person to the point where they're literally, they're just, you know, uh, abused every single day of their lives, um, how can you not see that as some sort of self-perpetuating cycle that's meant to turn people into products and, Mm -hmm. you know, coerced labor and all this sort of stuff? And Literally, not just a new Jim Crow, but a new slavery. Right, um, and that, that's a uh, there's a great book that Eggers, uh, I think, sort of co edits a series of books called Voice of Witness, which are oral histories of just the most depressing shit you've ever heard of. 
uh, Surviving Justice is one edition he did, and it's about wrongfully accused people in prison, and you just, it's just terribly sad stuff, but, um, yeah, just another issue of, uh, or another instance of prison reform coming up in his writing. I feel like we've maybe talked more about Dave Eggers than we have uh, <laughs> Promised Land. That's related. Yeah. Um, and, and he does tell, or from what you, you probably could speak more to this than I could, but this is, the, at its heart, the kind of story that he would tell. Not told in the way that he would tell it. Um, you mean Promised Land? Yeah, Promised yeah, yeah. Land. Like, it, it's it's a Eggers kind of, of idea. It's just, you know, told in a kind of weird, kind of funky way because... Krasinski wrote it. Yeah, and, um, and and with Gus Van Sant sort of directorial tricks yeah. uh, with the Milk Carton Kids making a... Like make, writing original songs for this movie yeah. for some reason. Danny Elfman doing the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, and just with the cast, like not just that, but then you have uh, Francis McDormand and Matt Damon. Krasinski's well-known. Rosemary DeWitt. Um, it, it's a, a lot of heavy hitters, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of star-studded to be a movie that kind of came and went nobody really well, added a night about it and, and you know we were talking about fracking when's the last time you heard anyone talk about fracking yeah it's it sort of it sort of uh, had its political moment right after Gasland um, and, and I'm sure it's still happening just as much probably more because people aren't talking about it and when it was literally and maybe it's still this way I don't know enough about it really but um, was a modern day gold rush and you had people running off to South Dakota to work and you know getting paid just ridiculous amounts of money and like living in a trailer um, and you know working until they made a bunch of money and then just leaving and right. going back to where they're from or whatever um, just really a really important thing within our culture um, and within a lot of places you know they're doing this in other places around the world oil's a big or not oil gas is a big thing in uh, you know, like Russia and these other, these other countries. Uh, Australia, as Josh Fox talks about in the Gasoline sequel. And fracking is really destructive and has been blamed for the, the increase in frequency and strength of earthquakes in places like Oklahoma and uh, Missouri, places that were already kind of prone to earthquakes but now have and become even more so. Something the, the movie touches on pretty explicitly is uh, how fracking is sold as this sort of clean, quick, efficient process yeah. that just sort of like like an outpatient surgery kind of thing. We just come in, <laughs> pull it out, yeah. and you're good to go. It's just like nothing is that easy. I mean, you're talking about drilling a hole in the fucking earth. Yeah, it's a very violent process yeah. Um, yeah. of, you know, literally like phallically, you know, like with, uh, we talked about and there will be blood, very phallically, just like yep. jamming your giant Raping the earth, yeah. And shooting a bunch of white. It uses, <laughs> the industry uses, uses a ton of water and, you know, shooting it into these, and it's water that you can't, you know, it's contaminated at that point. You can't right. do anything else it. was like it. over 500 chemicals in this shit that they shoot Lubricants and yeah. things. Yeah. Um, and there's even that point, I think, Hal Holbrook's character says, because uh, I think uh, Matt Damon says, well, you know, it's a clean energy source. And he says, well, yeah, the, the fuel itself is clean, but the process of fracking is, is really dangerous. And, right. and this is this is what Gasland tells you all about, is, yeah. is just exactly what it is that's, 
you know, sort of this process loosens up and then contaminates water supplies and the, this chemical concoction, the, I mean, that's what gets lit on fire mm-hmm. uh, in, in people's homes. It's, it's just like basic, literally like the most basic physics you can think of, of if there's a bunch of shit under the ground and then you remove it, something's going to happen to the ground. Like it's going <laughs> to sink or it's going to move or something, right? right. Um, very basic kind of concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but you put enough you know, zeros after a dollar sign and people will be like, yeah, sure, go yeah. ahead. Even if they know it has negative effects. Like the people in the film, they're when they first get there, they're happy that he's there because they're like, oh, finally we can uh, you know, have the life we, we feel like we should have but can't you know, obtain any other way. Um, I just wanted to say that, because I, I didn't know this was a thing, uh, but I, I came across it. There, There's a thing called the Environmental Media Association, and every year they have their Environmental Media Awards that they hand out, and they pick a best film. And it's supposed to be a film, like best film that had an environmentally conscious message. Mm-hmm. So in 2013, Promised Land was their film of the year. A couple other films that we've done have also won this award. Oh, Two of them. Do you want to guess what they were? Um, so they were two films that we've done that have won. They won the award after this. So after. Oh, I was going to say. That's what's yeah. not day after tomorrow. So in the past five years. Um, or six years, I guess. I'm trying to think what we've done. I guess first reformed. Nope. No? No. Um, Captain Fantastic? Nope. Because that's not really that environment. Like we said, there's nothing really explicitly <laughs> yeah. environmental about that. Uh, now I'm just trying to remember what we've done. I hope it's not Interstellar. Yep. Interstellar won it. <laughs> I know. What? I was kind of shocked when I saw it myself. Environmentally conscious, yes. Yep. I mean, it's conscious of envi- the environment. Interesting. What's the other one? Ultra. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, it's a couple that make perfect sense and then interstellar. Because people think that... I, I guess it's the fact that the film acknowledges that there is it's some sort real. of issue with the Earth. <laughs> yeah. That that's enough, but doesn't really go... You know, like we've been talking about a lot of... Whenever we have a problem or, like, sort of take umbrage with a movie, it's usually because it doesn't go that extra step into the deeper kind of analysis of right. promised land it kind of it's it's making these points in a very kind of um, obvious way but it's not really taking them any deeper than that um, whereas with like first reformed it's drilling down on them and to a point of like almost obsession mm-hmm. um, which is that good shit that we all like. <laughs> But yeah, I just wanted to, to talk about that award because I thought it was kind of fascinating yeah, that, that is Interstellar won it. Huh. Um, and as far as I know, this is it's like one of the only awards that Promised Land won. So. Yeah, I can't imagine it being any, like being a contender. Like, like I said, you're not really invested in any of the characters. At least I'm not. They all just sort of seem like props for this point to be made yeah. and that's like I said I agree with the point the point that's being made but I could have just read an essay 
<laughs> I think this was the the germ of the idea was like a New York Times piece or something oh, about really? fracking. Um, so, and I, th- I think Francis McDormand won an Oscar for Fargo, right? Am I imagining that? I don't remember. I think maybe. I want to say that she did. If so, that would make her sort of like the one. Oh, no, Matt Damon, I guess, for Good Will Hunting. Yeah. For, I always forget. It's like the most famous yeah. Oscar you forget about. Right. Like and it's for writing, of all yeah. things. Yeah. Uh, not for this movie. Nope. Um, <laughs> so anything else? Um, no, I think, I think we got it. Okay. Well, then next week, we're, we're finally doing it. We've been talking about it for years. Um, so next week we're going to be talking about Avatar. The, the Last Airbender. <laughs> the Last Airbender. No, uh, James Cameron's yep. 2011? 2009. 2009 Avatar. Ten year, so 10 year anniversary, we're going to uh, do it. And so you'll have this before the sequels come out and whatever. I think they're making like 10 of them or something stupid. He'll, he'll be dead by the time those things come out. Yeah. Um, he'll die in a submarine accident. He'll he'll do that like transcendence thing where he's just like a consciousness and a head floating in some sort of bubble. They'll, they'll build an actual avatar. Yeah. For him to be in. It'll uh, be the Rock. <laughs> big James Cameron. The giant blue Dwayne the Rock Johnson yes. that he lives with him. Um. So yeah, we're gonna finally be talking about Avatar and. How it's Pocahontas with giant blue aliens and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, I think we, we discussed it a little bit in an earlier episode because something that's very interesting and, and I think relevant is the kind of commercial aspect of the movie that is, you know, a sort of uh, surface level environmentally conscious film, but like within the industry itself, you know, the commercial aspect is just completely it, hypocritical it's environmentally conscious in the same way that like a Starbucks recycled cup is <laughs> that's exactly it's, right and we, we should we should think about there's some good Zizek thoughts about uh, sort of uh, Starbucks or, or uh, Starbucks like companies and their uh, humanitarian efforts mm-hmm. uh, but yeah Avatar Avatar uh, which you know we'll talk about a bit but was kind of a Achievement of technical filmmaking, I guess, uh, technological filmmaking, um, which we can talk about, you know, why, how that's sort of, if that's all your movie has going for it, then who cares, right? Yeah, so, it's first like, reformed, we it's talked like, about. It's like the, one of the, like one of the earliest films ever made was just a train coming, you know, like it looked like it was coming yeah. out of the screen. <laughs> it's just like, that's sort of what Avatar let's do, is. Let's like. do that, but like now. <laughs> right, right. It's just um, people show up just to see the technology. Yeah, because there's, there's that school of filmmaking as scientific breakthrough almost mm-hmm. versus filmmaking as craft, which is like first reformed and uh, even like Ocho, I would say. It's like craft of filmmaking. Right, or, or um, just like art. Whereas Avatar is like craft American singles <laughs> <laughs> style of filmmaking. <laughs> Um, yes. So, yeah, that's what we're going to be doing next week. Uh, follow us at, at Twitter, on Twitter, whatever, um, of Twitter, at Anthropod Tweets, uh, available on SoundCloud, Twitter, Twitter, Apple, Spotify, all those good places. Uh, and big all blue those, people. All those great corporations. Tree sex, ponytail sex, and tail next. sex. What?
tail six. Tail, tail six. Tree six. All kinds of six next week. Stay tuned.